the Gospels, the front end of your New Testament is where we find the testimony of Jesus' incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. It's my hope to take us on an important journey this morning and in the coming weeks, this Advent celebration that we're in, 2022, to take a deeper look into the wondrous mystery of the incarnation of Christ. That is the miracle of God the Son who took on flesh and was born in a manger to the Virgin Mary to live in this world among us and yet without sin unto victory, resurrection, glory on our behalf. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, 23, testifies, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. John's Gospel, chapter 1, where you hopefully are by now in your scriptures, verse 14 testifies, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Church, there is so much wondrous depth to God's work in the incarnation of Jesus. The layers of these truths, as we see them unfold in Holy Scripture and are revealed to us, are deep and wide and at the same time, they can be hard to comprehend in our finite being. What this means is that many of us, if we're not careful, studied the scripture, committed, can end up with beliefs about who Jesus is and what God has done in the incarnation that are just simply not true. Therefore, ending up impacting our gospel testimony but not only that, also our worship of God. So it is my hope, as one of your shepherds, with the prayer and support of our elders, over the coming weeks to slow down with you and to take a look at the fundamental framework that God's Word reveals to us about God the Son taking on flesh, condescending Himself to live among us so that His death for His people would save us from our sins, reconcile us to God forever. My hope is not only to clarify what is true with these doctrines of God so that you avoid error or misrepresentation, but also to solidify your right understanding of God's revelation regarding these things so that you are moved to authentic and proper worship of God, and testimony of all that he has done in the Advent for our good and for his glory. So this year's Advent study, church, is going to be a little different. Today, the next two weeks, leading up to a, a wondrous, glorious Christmas Day time of worship. In these three sermons leading up to that, I want to go with you a little deeper I'll be honest, we're going to go a lot deeper. But I hope and pray 
that it is a true catalyst for your growing and understanding of Christ and therefore your worship of him. Amen? Let me pray for our time in the word and then we'll dive in together. Father, we slow to acknowledge the amazing grace and love you have shown in Christ's life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. We acknowledge his ongoing mediation to even pray to you. We acknowledge the power of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit on all believers to speak to you in faith. We're humbled at your saving work in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that we are moved to sanctification, that where we're stuck, that where we're caught up in sin, selfishness, we would be unstuck. We would be confessing and repenting and growing, maturing for your glory. Honor your name, doing business with the things before us. Leaning on the church and the word, Lord, I'm excited about this study, this Advent. Um, I'm excited about what you will do, how you will stretch us. I'm thankful for the, the giants in the faith, historic theologians and pastors who have come before us, who help us see a classic orthodox view of these things, not based on our tradition, not based on our modern preferences, but standing with your faithful of old. Help me to be a good steward of these doctrines, these truths. Help each one of us to listen open-handedly, not with our human reasoning, but with discernment, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, to hear your revelation and to trust it as truth, absolute truth. Refine us, reform us, grow us. I ask in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Christmas, at its core, is a birthday party, right? It is the biggest, most grand, most planned for, most expensive party we throw all year long, right? Enjoyed by many. I mean, who else's birthday do you see so much of your community joining in the celebration, the decorations, and all of it? It is a most special celebration in our calendar annually. This is because it is a celebration of the most famous birth mankind has ever known. The birth of the promised Messiah, the birth of Jesus Christ. But this birthday celebration is completely and utterly unique. 
not only because of who we are celebrating or what he came to do, as massive as that is, but because his birthday is not about a person's beginning like it is for all of the rest of mankind and the entire human race. See, when we celebrate every person's conception and birth, we are celebrating their beginning, that person who we love, who we know. We're celebrating that, that they exist, that God ordained to create them. But when we celebrate Jesus' conception and birth, we are celebrating his arrival in the flesh. We are not celebrating his beginning. We are not celebrating his creation. This is because God the Son has no beginning. Jesus wasn't created. This is because Jesus is eternal. This point leads us to the first of many doctrines of God the Son that I want to cover today. I want to do this to help you have a biblical basis for why we must think carefully and rightly about the happenings of Jesus' incarnation. Because if we don't, we end up thinking and reasoning and saying things about Jesus especially in the Incarnation, that are just not true. Many times leading to error and even great heresy, fundamental mistruths leading to damnation. The first of these foundational doctrines of God the Son's divine attributes is that He is eternal. He is without beginning. I had to turn to John's gospel because John gives this wonderful insight into the fact that Jesus does not have a beginning as many have wrongly taught or believed. Man-made religions um, that are popular and surrounding us in this day that wrongly teach that Jesus has a beginning. We must not be there. We must see what Scripture teaches us about this in order to not only believe rightly ourselves, but be able to correct those who are misguided in their understanding. Look with me at John's Gospel. See with me in just these opening verses, these beautiful truths unfold. Gospel of John, chapter 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. If you were to read this and had no prior knowledge of who it's talking about, the, most, the first and most significant question you would probably ask is, who is the one that's being referred to as the Word? And to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and a sweet place we see this just clearly stated is in the opening verses of 
Hebrews chapter 1, 1 and 2, says, Long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The word of God, the voice of God, the truth of God, is revealed in God the Son, Jesus. He is the Logos, the Alpha in the beginning was the Word. This is a reference to God the Son. The phrase, in the beginning, is a reference to the beginning of creation. What is created when it began. The beginning of time. It says, at that moment of creation, in the beginning, <clears throat> was the Word. There are two separate words in the Greek in this passage that we see, both rendered was. One of them means to exist. The other means to come into being. Two very different things. The latter word is used in John 1.3. All things that were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Have you ever wondered why that sentence reads so choppy and funky? Why not just say without him was not anything made, period? That's simple. Why add the that was made? And it's because there's an important and very important point being made. John is saying all things that are made, that are created, were made by him. In other words, it is John's way of saying that Jesus is not part of the made. He is eternal. We see this word used, the, the word was used again in John 1.6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. There was or came to exist a man sent from God whose name was John. Speaking of John the Baptist, John the Baptist was created. Different was. But here in John 1, 1 and 1, 2, the word was in the, in the original language means he exists. In other words, he did not come into being or begin to be. In other words, he was with God from all eternity. Another way of looking at this is the major point I want you to see today. If God the Son was in the beginning, if he was when the beginning happened, then he himself is without beginning. It's the negative way of saying he is eternal. He's not part of the creation. Jesus speaks clearly of this essential truth of his eternality in his prayer, his very famous prayer, 17 chapters later in John's gospel, John 17, he's praying to the Father and says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed, before creation. There it is, John 17, 5. Jesus also driving this point home in John 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
I am Abraham, one of, if not the father of the Jewish people, right? Holistically known, loved, honored, the one clearly of many generations ago, Jesus standing there says, before Abraham, I am, I exist. If Jesus is present at, or as other scriptures will tell us, active in the beginning, the inauguration of creation, the beginning of time, then he himself is not created. Therefore, confirming the absolute deity and eternality of God the Son, Jesus. Church, this is only a few words into John's gospel, and we already have one of these most essential and high and glorious truths about Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. When everything that has a beginning began, God the Son was not only there, he was an essential part of it along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Oh, how we should worship him. Speaking of Jesus, the Apostle Paul confirms this mighty truth when he says to the church at Colossae, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, and he is before all things. We also have in this the doctrine of, of Jesus' eternal sonship, which affirms that the second person of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the second person has eternally existed as the Son. In other words, there was never a time when Jesus is not the Son of God. There has always been a Father-Son relationship within the Godhead. The doctrine recognizes that the sonship is not merely a title or a role that Jesus took on at some point in history to serve a specific purpose, but that it is the essential identity of the second person of the Godhead. Jesus is and always has been the Son of God. John the Baptist understood the eternality of Christ clearly, and it's proven when he says this. John 1 Gospel of John, chapter 1, look down at 15. John bore witness about him, about Jesus, and cried out, quote, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. A little context for this. John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus was born. And yet, he, Jesus, who was born after John, comes ranks before me because he was before me, because he's eternal. Jesus speaks of his eternality in a famous scripture in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8 saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. These are essential clarities from God's word about the eternality of Jesus. 
that God the Son is eternal. Meaning he has no beginning and no end. He did not come into being at conception in Mary's womb. He did not come into being at conception in Mary's womb. No, what he did was assumed a human nature to his being. We're going to get into the depths of that technical fact next week. But the key foundational thing we need to take away here is that he is not created like the rest of mankind. He is eternal. God the Son was and is and always will be. Amen? Note another important clarifying and wonderful truth we see here in these opening verses in the second part of verse 1. And the Word was with God. Different than the opening verses of other Gospels where Jesus is um, referred to as the Son of David um, or the Son of Man or even the Son of God, but But here, the word was with God. This shows Jesus' separate personhood. It shows that there's a relationship between the persons of the Holy Godhead. The words in the beginning are identical to the Greek, in the Greek, to the first words of the Old Testament. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's not an accident. Because the first thing John is going to tell us about what Jesus did is that he created the universe. That's as we see in our text today. That's what verse 3 says. So the words in the beginning mean before there was created matter, there was the word, God the Son. In the creation, at the creation, he's active in it. Look with me at Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us... Make man in our image after our likeness. Another reference clearly to the Holy Trinity, the three distinct persons of the Holy Godhead. God's word tells us that God is three persons, yet one God. The Word of Truth Catechism defines the Trinity easily, clearly this way. The Trinity, God, one God. One God, three persons. Not three gods. One God, three persons. There is but one eternal Godhead that exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully and completely God. Each has the same essence and is described in Scripture as possessing the attributes of God. This is a major launching pad in how we understand God. Jesus is God. Eternal God. All-powerful God. All-knowing God. And he possesses all the attributes of God. How? Because he is God. A great place we see these truths clarified in the Word of Truth Catechism is question four. Does God have a beginning or an end? No. (laughs) 
No. God is eternal. Self-existent and self-sufficient. He's not subject to time. And he has no beginning and no end. God is timeless, church. Having always existed and without measure or limit in greatness or duration, he transcends time and has no beginning and no end. God is infinite in essence, absolutely perfect. There are no constraints upon him from outside of himself. Our beloved brother, Matt, my brother, your brother, spoke to this well in a midweek lesson that he gave a few years ago. And I quote, We, mankind, are temporal. That's how we understand things, from a temporal default, a temporal mode. And that's the pitfall most of us fall into when we begin to think about God being eternal. We attach our temporal understanding of the doctrine of God, but we need to put that away. We need a new category in our minds for understanding God's existence. God being eternal is not a different way of being temporal. This is so important. Let me say it again. God being eternal is not a different way of being temporal. See, we have a beginning. But more than that, we experience things in time. We experience progression. We experience change. We experience things as they happen. But God does not. It is not that we have a kind of time and God has a different kind of time. We must not bring temporal things into our understanding of God's eternality. And therein lies where we struggle with so much of this. We want to reason how this all works according to us. We can't do that. We have to let God speak in his word and inform our thinking. And by faith we trust him and we think as he tells us to think, especially about him. What we see in this coming into view is another of God's wonderful and essential attributes I want to share with you and remind you of this morning, and that is the aseity of God. The aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y. The aseity of God. God does not owe his existence to anything or anyone outside himself. Nor does he need anything beyond himself to maintain his existence. He is self-contained, self-existent, self-sufficient, and independent. The term aseity comes from the Latin phrase ase, meaning from or by oneself. Since God is ase, he's not like the idols of man that depend their existence on materials, craftsmanship, ritual offerings. 
nor is he like anything else in creation depending on an outside creator and sustainer, just as we all are. This means that God has no need from creation at all. He's complete in and of himself. He's not lacking anything that creation provides him. Therefore, the term self-contained, self-existent, self-sufficient, independent are often used as synonyms for aseity. Another one of God's amazing attributes that we must see rightly is his immutability. Immutability is God, God's attribute as defined in the Word Truth Catechism. God, in his being, perfections, will, purposes, ordinations, and promises does not change in any way. He has always been and will always be exactly the same. James famously speaks to this in James 1.17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So even though our world is always changing. We must understand that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are unchanging. God is constant in a way that best defines what constant is. God is not swayed or moved or unsettled in any way. Nothing surprises him. Nothing moves him. Nothing causes him to have to shift. This is a very important doctrine, the immutability of God. The Latin word means not changeable. God in his being, hear it again, perfections, his will, his purposes, his ordinations, and promises does not change in any way. He always has been and always will be exactly the same. God himself declared this most specifically in Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord... Do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This is a huge point. Think about that. If there was ever a people who are unfaithful, who are unable to deliver and to finish, to stay the course, it's us. And if God was then moved or swayed by our actions or lack of action, we would be consumed in his righteous judgment. But God set out to deliver a people of his choosing from before time to save them from their deserved death, to secure them in his ever steady and eternal grip. 
This is because God was not moved and he did not react to our unfaithfulness. No, he is immutable. And so he fulfills his eternal purposes and will perfectly. Now, as we're making our way through these wondrous attributes of God, you might be starting to ask yourself, but how are these things true of Jesus whose incarnation seems to bring a ton of change to who he is? Right? Jesus had emotion in his flesh. He grew in knowledge in his flesh. All these, all these things. All, all these. So, if this tension is building, then I say that's good. It's much of what we're going to unpack in the coming weeks. Yes, you're going to feel a little bit of cliffhanger at the end of today. That's okay. We must let Scripture inform our thinking and our belief. Matt said this Wednesday, right? We're, we're, we're in a sweet spot, not only on Sundays right now in December, but on Wednesdays. Uh, Matt began a three-part study of the sovereignty of God last Wednesday and said something very critical in that opening lesson. If you missed it, you missed it. You need to get audio or video from us and you need to be here Wednesday. You thought last Wednesday was good. Ooh, you're in for it this Wednesday. We must let Scripture inform our thinking and belief and not let our human reasoning do this. If something, therefore, seems to not be in line or to add up to our reasoning, something that God's Word, His revelation, clearly and directly and didactically says, then what He says it is is what it is. No matter how it may seem to us, we have to see that we are finite. We are limited in our scope and in our comprehension. He is not. So to tease the depths of where we'll continue to be in these coming weeks of the series, let me ask and then answer. Does Jesus change when he takes on flesh at the incarnation in any way? I mean... Reasoning would say, he's spirit, he's without a body, he now has a body. We see that he experiences emotions, he's growing in knowledge, like, right? It's, it's Scripture's answer, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. No, he does not change in any way. He is God. He is immutable. That informs our understanding of the incarnation and where we must go next week. Now, we're going to dig into that. But today, why is this reality about God, about Jesus' divinity, these attributes he has and always has had, why is it good news to us? Because in a world where nothing is certain, 
If you woke up today and you felt pretty sure about how today was going to go, you felt pretty certain, right? We talk about that way all the time, right? You're lying to yourself. You, you have no insight or control over what happens to you 10 seconds from now. Not to mention how the chair below you is performing, not to mention how the, the, the atmosphere is performing, the cells in your body are performing, the people around you are performing. You don't know. Nothing's certain. In a world where nothing is certain, God is certain. In a world where people and circumstances shift on a dime, where promises are made and then broken without any delay, God is faithful. God is constant. God is certain and stable. He is unmoved. Jesus is faithful and dependable in every way, Christian. He's not emotional. He's not given to the circumstances of creation like you and I are. He is ase. He is immutable. He is eternal. And always will be. I just mentioned a moment ago, God is not emotional. This is another divine attribute called his impassibility. Impassibility is defined in the Word Truth Catechism as God's attribute. God does not experience emotional changes either from within or affected by his relationship to creation. He remains unchanged and unchanging both prior and subsequent to creation. I don't have time to get into it. I didn't say this first hour, but I'll say it here. There is a part of us from our finite created emotional place, we want God to be emotional. We want him to experience us in a way that we value. Even to the point where you hear this about God and you're maybe instantly frustrated with me or this church or these doctrines. Like, that's not the God I want. And can I just say this because I love you? You don't want God to be emotional. <laughs> Nor is he. He's perfect. He's unmoved. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? 1 Samuel 15, 29, also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that, she, that he should have regret.
Isaiah 27, 4, I have no wrath. That seems contradictory because one of the divine attributes of God is wrath. So we have to dive a little deeper into translation. The word here is fury. It's anger. I have no anger. Fury, the, new, the Young's literal translation says it this way. Fury is not in me. Emotional anger, he does not have. Does the Bible seem to say elsewhere that God regretted his decision? That God's anger was deep, steep? Right? So you're maybe thinking of some of those texts. What we have to do, this is what we're going to do, is understand those things in light of this. Because they can't both be true. So how we historically, theologically understand those things is that those are words He's using to condescend to get to us that we could understand better. Anthropomorphic language. He, without a body, without these things, talks about his hands and these things. Doesn't mean he has hands because it says it's, it, there's, it's a form of communication of language but it's not trying to say what is. This is saying what is. We will get into this next week. Jesus' human nature, definitely, right? I don't have to say this very loud. Experiences and shows real emotion in the flesh, right? We've tons of scriptures. But we must rightly understand that God the Son's divinity means he is impassable and therefore experiences no emotion. Understand with me, church, that these amazing characteristics of God's immutability, impassibility, aseity, eternality are the core and foundational attributes of what makes God to be God. God is free from all composition and devoid of all potential. For he is complete, he is pure and holy, he is unmoved and never altered. Any improvement, therefore, or shift in conviction would mean he was ever so slightly wrong or needing of improvement. So understand, as a foundational anchor of our doctrine of God, before we dive into the uniqueness of Jesus' incarnation in the coming weeks, any change in God means a shift from what was, this simply cannot be. For God was and is and always will be perfect, complete, right, satisfied, and holy. While classical, historic, orthodox Christian theology, what I'm representing for you this morning and will in the coming weeks, while classical, historic, orthodox Christian theology has always held to God the Son's immutability, aseity, impassibility, eternality, many, sadly, many modern-day theologians, pastors, 
have made attempts to soften the immutability of God and then therefore wrongly interpret or understand the incarnation and the handling of a changing world that then causes man to start to change the clear teaching of Scripture, how we understand it, how we live it out. James, hear James' words again. With God, there is no variation or shadow due to change. <clears throat> Herman Bovink, Dutch Reformed theologian, professor, the late 1800s, early 1900s, is considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, reform scholars ever. You heard Matt quote him a number of times Wednesday night. As we prepare in the coming weeks for the study of Jesus taking on flesh, Bavink speaks well to these uncompromising realities of God the Son in his famous work, Reform Dogmatics. A couple quotes for you. Hear them clearly, quickly. The difference between the Creator and the creatures hinges on the contrast between being and becoming. Pavin goes on to say, those who practice any change whatsoever, I'm sorry, those who predicate any change whatsoever of God, whether with respect to his essence, his knowledge, or will, or diminish his attributes, independence, simplicity, eternity, omniscience, omnipotence. This robs God of his divine nature and religion of its firm foundation and assured comfort. He continues, there is change around, about, and outside of him. And there is change in people's relationship to him, but there is no change in God himself. Finally, he says, though eternal in himself, with no before or after, God engages the temporal world, condescending as transcendent God to dwell eminently in all created beings. While there might be perceived changes in God the Son, especially related to his taking on flesh at the Incarnation, and in how God interacts with his creation, we must understand these things in light of the truth of his aseity and his immutability. I very much look forward to the next phase of our study as we aim to understand God, the Son's divinity, in light of his taking on flesh, in light of his humanity. But let's not miss the opportunity this morning to exalt God for all that he is in his divinity, to worship Jesus as our mighty Lord and God. Church, we have to see rightly that we are in his mighty and eternal and unchanging grip. Why? Because 
This world's coming at you from all sides. Because your bodies are breaking down every day. In, in this first creation that will not maintain as it is, there's a culture that doesn't know truth and whose normal operation is lies and deceit. In all of that, we are saved and secured by a God that is unchanging. God in his being, perfections, will, purposes, ordinations, and promises does not change in any way. He always has been and will always be exactly the same. This means he will not change his mind about who he's going to save or keep or protect. This means he will fulfill all of his promises like no one else you know does. This means he will finish what he started and not stop or change course on you. This means nothing can overcome him or persuade him to be or to do other than he perfectly is and set out to do. Do you believe this? Do you believe this when life is coming at you hard? When the bottom's falling out? When the storms that you're going through don't feel little, you, you feel like you're being tossed by 40-foot waves? If your soul is longing for faithfulness, for dependability, for stability and certainty and victory, see with me today that God alone is your only hope for this. And then in that, do business with the ways that you have allowed yourself to be swayed to your changing circumstances, to the happenings of life, to the way other people are living, reacting, not living, to whatever. You would not be tossed to and fro. You would be anchored on the Lord, your God, that your faith in Him would sustain you. Listen to word, David's words, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam 
though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the, the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Christian, when life is coming at you, when injustice Is a raging fire in your life? Real physical pain, mental struggle are ever, ever present? We must be still and know that He is God, that the Lord of hosts will be with us. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Think about what this does to our faith. On a daily basis, especially in the midst of life's hardships, that we know the one in whom we have life, foundation, salvation, perseverance, protection, Power is Jesus, who is unchanging and who is eternally supreme over all things. And if you are demanding that you see and experience that, you're rejecting faith. Because it's only faith if you don't see it. Do you get that? It is your faith in these truths, in this Lord, that is your only way, can't demand that you see it. Christian, do you have faith? Do you trust God? Are you moved by that faith? Are you resting in that faith? May we truly be grounded in our sound understanding of who God is so that when the lies come and when the circumstances are changing, that we 
speak this truth back to our hearts and our minds, to each other, to ground ourselves. Oh, I pray it's game-changing for you. Stand with me and hear the words of our historic Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 2, section 1, as we prepare to worship God. The Lord our God is one. The only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and in perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but Him. He is perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body, parts, or unchanging emotions. I'm sorry, or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, and completely absolute. Pray with me. God, you are gracious to us to give us your holy word. I have no longing to impart or convince these people of my ideas, my hopes, my design. I want to be a good steward of your word, to be accountable to the work of the Spirit, to stand in unity with the giants of our historic, classical, biblical faith. And I'm, and I'm thankful, God, thankful that you are doing this work in us, that we all too often are, are guilty of just thinking so small about Sunday morning, about you, about your people, about the work you're doing in the world. And we think so much of stupid stuff, temporary stuff, lights that aren't working, and stuff. And, and yet, your word shows understanding that, that we... We struggle in all these things. The flesh struggles to cling to the temporary, to pursue its self-interest. And yet, praise you, Lord, that the Spirit is on board for us, for us who you've saved to know truth, to heed it, to confess and repent of sin and mature in faith. For others, 
eternal good and for your eternal glory. Thank you for what you've begun in us today and reminded or taught us today that it would really bring about movement in us, faith that goes to work, that we would not stay. Your word is able to do this, the work of the Spirit. We are so thankful, Lord. Uh, We love you. We worship you. We exalt you in the marvelous and miraculous work of the Incarnation and are excited to grow in our depths of understanding of it in the weeks to come. Be glorified in us now as we sing, as we prepare to go and testify. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.